Guardian Unlimited. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Andrew George. Uh, question one, uh, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, sir, we are making progress on the commitments to the Millennium Development Goals, in particular in respect of the commitment to halve the world's population living in poverty. We are making significant um, progress on that. In respect of HIV-AIDS, we believe we will have near-universal access by 2010. And in respect of primary education, there is a big increase in the numbers going into primary education in Africa today. However, we need to do much more. The G8 summit in a couple of weeks' time will be immensely important. Um, both in Washington last week and in Germany a couple of weeks ago. I was urging both the American and the German governments to do more in respect of Africa and poverty, and I hope very much that those efforts will come to fruition at the G8 conference. George. Um, Mr. Speaker, we, we are halfway um, through the 15 years set by the rich world to deliver the millennium promise of making poverty history in the poorest countries around the globe. Uh, and yet, despite the, the fanfare at Glen Eagles two years ago, there are stalled trade talks, the, the obstacle uh, of an increasingly polarized and dangerous world, and a failure to deliver the, the promised aid. As campaigners say, the world cannot wait. So does the Prime Minister believe that G8 leaders will ever live up uh, to the hopes of their people? And if so, what does he believe is now necessary to deliver? Our order. Our order. First of all, I think it is important that the G8 leaders live up to the commitments that are given at Glen Eagles, and I think the next couple of weeks um, will be absolutely vital in that regard. But I have to say to the Honourable Gentleman, as a result of Glen Eagles, we have literally wiped out billions of dollars' worth of debt for some of the poorest countries. We have increased radically the number of children going into primary education, often precisely because of that debt relief. This country should be proud of the fact it has trebled its aid to Africa and doubled its overall AIDS budget, aid budget. And as a result of what we are able to do now on HIV AIDS, I think there is a real difference being made. Literally hundreds of thousands of lives being saved in Africa. So we have to do more. We will do more. The next couple of weeks will be vital in that. But I think we should be proud particularly of what this country has achieved in relation to the Millennium Development Goals. Question two, Mr Speaker. Mr. Speaker, sir, helping every child reach their full potential and closing the attainment gap between disadvantaged young people and their peers is a priority for our education policy. In respect of that, both the rollout of children's centres across the country, there will be 3,500 of them by 2010, the additional support that is being given to families with children, particularly the poorest, and early years intervention, um, both when children are pre-nursery stage and at nursery stage, is making a real difference. But I agree, again, there is much more that needs to be done. The Prime Minister will be aware that for every pound spent on intensive uh, health visiting for the under-twos, six pounds is saved on the costs of uh, criminality, uh, disrupted classes, antisocial behaviour and a lifetime on welfare benefits. Will the Prime Minister welcome the initiative being taken, not only by government departments but by partners in Nottingham as well, to bring forward a package of early intervention measures 
so that we can not only break the intergenerational cycle of deprivation, but be able to save the taxpayer billions of pounds as well. Well, I I totally agree with my honourable friend. Incidentally, let me pay tribute to the work that he has done and the work that's been done by the City of Nottingham, uh, particularly in respect of early intervention for families that are disadvantaged or in difficulty. And he is right in saying, too, that the more that we invest in this early stage, the better the return for the whole of the country later in life. As a result of the new measures that we introduced uh, and announced just a couple of weeks ago, we will have the ability now, particularly through focused work by health visitors and others, to make sure that those children who really need help early in life and those families that need help, that help, get that help. And as a result of that, as he rightly says, particularly when we're also encouraging families to get off benefit and into work, we will make a real difference to child poverty in the country. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Would the um, Prime Minister consider commissioning report, uh, reports and investigations into early interventions on the potential link between those who suffer from dyslexia and criminality later in life. Is he aware that there is a unique pilot scheme in Chelmsford Prison which has identified that over 50% of prisoners suffer from dyslexia and that there is help being provided in that prison to help them overcome or minimise their problems, but no help once they leave prison, which could lead to ongoing problems and a return to criminality. Actually, the the point that he makes is is a very good one and a valid one. And, in fact, government is now looking at particularly the link between some of these learning disabilities. Dyslexia is, is a very obvious one, and he's absolutely right in saying that if we look at the prison population, many of those are people who have not had the educational opportunities, often because they have been dyslexic, they have not been diagnosed properly, they've not got the extra help that they've needed. We are looking specifically at how the early intervention programmes help those people. But he's absolutely right in what he's saying, and when we have the results of that um, investigation that we're carrying out at the moment, we will, of course, share them with the House. John Grogan, number three, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, sir, before listing my engagements, I'm sure the whole House will once again wish to join with me in sending our profound sympathy and condolences to the family and friends of Corporal Jeremy Brooks, of 4th Battalion, the Rifles, who was killed in Iraq this week by a terrorist bomb. He and others before him died working towards a safer and more secure world, and we pay tribute to him. Mr Speaker, so this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. I'm sure the whole House uh, will want to be associated with the Prime Minister's remarks. Does the Prime Minister agree with me, and indeed with the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, that those lobbying firms like Bell Pottinger and DLA Piper that do not currently sign up to the industry's voluntary ethical code of standards which require transparency as regards all clients should seriously consider doing so? Well, as I understand it, uh, this is an area I think the uh, Public Administration Committee is is going to uh, have a look at and we will of course pay careful attention um, to the study that they undertake and to the conclusions they come to. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Corporal Jeremy Brooks, and I also pay tribute to Lance Corporal George Davey, who died after a tragic accident at a British base in Afghanistan. With over 40 maternity units under threat in the NHS, including five in Greater Manchester, would the Prime Minister advise the next Prime Minister to stop this closure programme and think again? I certainly would not advise stopping a change programme that is absolutely necessary in order to provide the best care 
for patients. And part of this will, of course, involve more specialist services where those who need specialist help get it and those who don't get a more routine service. That is entirely sensible. It is being clinically driven. We are actually putting more money into maternity services in Manchester and elsewhere. And let me just point out to him two reports that came out just within the last week. One from the Healthcare Commission. 90% of patients said the healthcare they received inside the NHS was excellent or good. And secondly, the international survey that ranks the UK's NHS top ahead of Australia, Canada, Germany, New Zealand and the United States of America. And one of the reasons is the investment that we put in that he opposed... And the other reason are necessary changes, which he's now also opposing. So let's be absolutely clear, the closure programme is continuing. Yes, that's what we've learned. Even though deputy leadership candidates, even though deputy leadership candidates are appearing on picket lines and objecting, even though the former chairman of the British Medical Association says that morale in the NHS is at a 30-year low. Now, across the country, accident and emergency departments are under threat, including five in London. Will he advise the next Prime Minister to stop that closure programme? I give exactly the same response as to the last question. And the reason for that is that we are being advised by those who, with the greatest respect to him, know better than him about how to deliver health care in this country. But these changes are necessary. And let's be absolutely clear, at the same time as these changes are happening, Waiting lists are falling, waiting times are falling, cancer treatment is improving, cardiac treatment is improving, and actually the standard of care in the NHS is improving. But I think it's extraordinary that he, earlier this week, has now made a speech saying he will abolish all NHS targets if the Conservatives are returned to power. That means, let's be quite clear, that there will be no minimum waiting times, there will be no fall in the waiting list, there will be no ability to see cancer specialists within two weeks, there will be no minimum waits or maximum waits in accident and emergency, and it may get him a round of applause with certain parts of the medical profession. It is not in the interests of patients. He asks who he should listen to. I'll tell him who he should listen to. The General Secretary, the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, who says this, I have never seen so much money wasted. It must be a personal tragedy for Tony Blair. In the recesses of his mind, he must be saying, what the hell has gone wrong? We've got hospitals closing, 27,000 jobs lost in the last year, thousands of junior doctors being lost to the NHS, public confidence in labour at an all-time low. So would he advise his successor? He could ask him now. It's a bit like proximity talks today. Would he advise his successor to keep the health secretary in post? Let me just point out, well, these are decisions for my right honourable friend, but let me just point out to him this. When he says we have lost thousands of jobs in the NHS, there are 250,000 more people employed by the NHS today. When he says we've got hospitals closing, for the first time we've got the biggest hospital building programme underway now. And whereas when we came to power, over half the NHS stock was actually built before the NHS came into existence, now it's fewer than 25%. We've got more doctors also. We've got lower waiting times, lower waiting lists. And all he is doing is simply supporting groups who, I understand, are opposed to change. But these are changes. 
that are delivering better outcomes for patients. And when we get, which we will, at the end of next year, to the maximum wait, 18 weeks, inpatient and outpatient, including the diagnostics, when we effectively abolish waiting within the National Health Service, it will be because of the decisions taken by this government and in spite of the positions taken by him. Everyone. Order. Order. Speaker of the Opposition. Everyone in the NHS and everyone in the country will have noticed he's hung his health secretary out to dry. Doesn't he realise the damage it does to have a lame duck health secretary in post for another month? Let's look at another minister not up to the job. Last week, the housing minister told us. Yes. The housing minister told us that the court case against home information packs was, and I quote, completely groundless and had no impact on policy. Yesterday, the Secretary of State told us that the court case was the very reason they had to be all but abandoned. So will the Prime Minister advise the next Prime Minister to keep the Housing Minister in post? I most certainly will not advise an abandonment. I will, not, I will not advise abandoning this programme at all or the Home Information Pact. So let me just say, I think it is extraordinary that the Conservative Party are opposing energy performance certificates. Yeah, no, it's absolutely typical. He says he cares about the environment, but when there's a specific measure to help the environment, he opposes it. He opposed the climate change levy. He's now opposing the energy performance certificates. He can't say where he stands on nuclear power or any of the issues in the white paper today. And the fact of the matter is, as ever, when it comes to serious politics, we take the decisions, he makes the gestures. Everybody knows, every, everybody knows that energy performance certificates could be introduced anyway. That fig leaf isn't even green. No. Yeah. Last Wednesday, last Wednesday, in the House of Commons, his housing minister, the Prime Minister should listen, his housing minister, well, he's not going to be here much longer. Last Wednesday in the House of Commons, his housing minister led us to believe that there were 1,100 registered home inspectors ready to go. Yesterday, it was admitted that there was less than half of th than that. Now, never mind what the next Prime Minister is going to do, what on earth is she still doing in her job? First of all, let me just tell you, there are three, over 3,000 that have actually passed their exams that now can get accreditation. Now that the court case has been dealt with, those people can then come forward and be accredited. But I thought it was amazing that he said that he supports the Energy Performance Certificate. So he supports its introduction. Isn't it sensible, therefore, to make its introduction at the point of sale for a house so that the buyer can see what measures they can take in order to protect the environment? After all, as all the environmental groups point out, 25% of CO2 emissions come from households. Why is he opposed to this measure if he supports the Energy Performance Certificate? I, I know the walls of the bunker are pretty thick, but hasn't he noticed this policy has completely collapsed? Yeah. 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 The Prime Minister told us he had so much to do in his dying weeks, yet home information packs are in chaos. He set up a Ministry of Justice without even telling his Lord Chancellor, and he's doing nothing to stop the cuts, the closures and the plummeting morale in the health service. The Chairman of the British Medical Association resigned on Sunday, and he'll be leaving office on Friday. Isn't that an example the Prime Minister should follow? Yeah. Well, let me tell him that I think it's instructive to look at what both parties have been doing this week. Today we have the energy white paper, major 
task in order to make sure we have energy security for the future. Yesterday, we had the transport bill, which allows us to re-regulate the buses and introduce local road pricing. And then on Monday, we have the planning proposals, which are supported by industry, opposed by his party, incidentally, but supported by industry, and the digital X-ray imaging for the National Health Service. That's what we've been doing. What's he been doing? Trying to persuade his party that grammar schools are not the answer to education. Now, I happen to agree with him. But frankly, it's an argument from the Stone Age. Therefore, whilst this party has been getting on with the serious business of politics, he can't even take his party with him on that issue. Order, order. Andrew McKinley. Will, will, will the Prime Minister... Will the Prime Minister invite the Chancellor of the Exchequer to accompany him to the European Union summit? Does he realise that uh, not to do so would appear churlish and discourteous, but the British people require that the Prime Minister-elect should be there accompanying and sharing decisions which cannot be reversed? I can assure my honourable friend that the position that has taken the European summit will be the, the, the position of the government and we have set out that position already. We do not want a constitutional treaty. We want a simplifying amending treaty and I'm sure we will manage to get it. Sir Mingus Campbell. Yeah. Mr Speaker, I join the Prime Minister in his expressions once again of sympathy uh, and uh, condolence. Can the Prime Minister explain why in his manifestos of 1997, 2001, and 2005, he did not seek a mandate for a new generation of nuclear power stations. Why is he so hell-bent on nuclear power now? We are going to... Sorry, I missed that one. We are... What? No, I don't think that's quite reasonable. We are going to go from a situation, as my right honourable friend will explain today, where we are, are going to have the self-sufficiency that we've got in oil and gas at the moment. We are 80%, 90% self-sufficient. That is going to decline completely in relation to gas, largely in relation to oil. We are also going to have a situation where a lot of the fleet of the power stations becomes obsolete and our nuclear power stations become obsolete. Now, if we want to have secure energy supplies and reduce CO2 emissions, we have got to put the issue of nuclear power on the agenda. If people are not prepared to do that, then I would like them to explain how we are going to manage to reduce that self-sufficiency dramatically, as I describe, how we are going to be able through wind power or renewables to make up the huge deficit that nuclear power is going to leave. And if we're about serious policy making, I'm afraid we've got to confront and take decisions on these issues. Sir Lewis Campbell, very clearly in the Cabinet Office Review of 2003. Why is it that the Prime Minister is so committed to nuclear power in a way which suggests that he disregards the issue of risk and cost and toxic waste? Where is the investment in wave, wind and tidal power and clean coal technology that would give us a secure, non-nuclear future? First of all, we are boosting renewable energy significantly. But let's be absolutely clear about this. We are not going to be able to make up through wind farms all the deficit on nuclear power. We're just not going to be able to do it. And in addition to that... We have had nuclear power in this country for over half a century without the problems that the right honourable gentleman draws attention to. And I also urge him 
to look round the world and he will see that at this present time, I think I'm right in saying there are something like 70 to 80 new proposals for nuclear power stations, and that is for a perfectly sensible reason, that every country around the world is looking at these two problems, securing energy supply with sufficient diversity and reducing CO2 emissions. And the reason why we should look at nuclear power as an option here is because if we don't do that, we are simply, for reasons in my view of, of, of ideology, putting it to one side, when plainly round the world many others are coming to the opposite conclusion. Well, all nerve, Mr Speaker. I'm sure the old House would wish to extend their sympathies to my constituents, Bill and Julie Walker, whose 22-year-old daughter, Lindsay, was murdered in Japan some two months ago. Whilst the police over there have been doing their best to apprehend the killer, they have not been successful. And I know his honourable friend and my honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, raised this yesterday in a, in a visit to Japan. But could I ask my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, to talk to the Prime Minister of Japan to put his authority behind the effort to ensure the killer is caught and to ensure that the Japanese state police are involved. And finally, could I ask him to get the Prime Minister of Japan to invite someone from the UK police to be there on the case as, as, as observers so that they can provide a very, very good link back to Mr and Mrs Orca, who do need some essential support. Thank you. First of all, can I join with my honourable friend in extending... Um, my sympathy and condolences to the Hawker family. Um, and as he knows, the Foreign Office have been closely in touch with the family throughout, and, and it is important we continue to provide all the possible assistance that we can. I also understand that the, the Japanese authorities, who certainly are treating this as a major case of something like 100 police officers or more working on it. However, I will reflect carefully on what he is saying in relation both to the Japanese Prime Minister uh, and in respect of any help that the British police can give, and I, I will come uh, back to him on it. And in the meantime, I can assure him we will keep in closest possible touch with the family. Richard Spring. Yeah, 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 yeah. Considering the massive health deficits and high council taxes in the east of England, may I tell the Prime Minister how interested my constituents would be to know that in Scotland, public spending per head is higher by 40%. In retrospect, does the Prime Minister consider this to have been a worthwhile investment? <laughs> um, well, I, I do actually uh, support the Barnett formula, as a matter of fact, uh, which is there for very specific reasons that has been there for, for um, almost 30 years. But let's be absolutely clear about this. As well as the extra investment that's gone into Scotland with the Barnett formula applying, there has been extra investment not least in his own constituency in education and health. And he need only look around his own constituency to see the massive amount of investment, for example, in the new healthcare facilities in his constituency, in the schools in his constituency, and in programmes like Sure Start and the New Deal. And so, of course, uh, the Barnett formula will no doubt, for the Conservative Party at least, continue to be um, an, an issue of dispute. But I think that we have put a major amount of investment in our public services, and that investment is paying off. Gordon Prentice. Um, our mutual friend, the Chancellor, has uh, spoken about... <laughs> Has, uh, has spoken about rebuilding trust in public life. Does my friend agree with me that the best way forward would be to transfer responsibility for the appointment, terms of reference, terms of office, of the constitutional watchdogs, such as the Committee on Standards in Public Life, from number 10, where prerogative powers are used, to Parliament, this place, where they can be set up by statute? Well, uh, 
I'm sure that will be an interesting debate for the future, but for the present I can say I've got no plans to change the situation. Mr Speaker, may I ask the Prime Minister to intervene personally in the debate, or rather the litigation, between NACODS, the Miners' Union, and the Government relating to uh, knee injuries suffered by ex-miners? Would he please request ministers from the DTI to engage constructively to try and avoid the long drawn out litigation in this matter. And if he were to so intervene, may I be the first to congratulate him on his, on the, his term of office and also to wish him a very long and happy retirement? Right. Um, first of all, I mean, in respect of the particular court case, I will have to, to, to see what it is indeed in proper for me to, to do by, by way of intervention. I mean, I would point out, obviously, that I think I'm right in saying the figures now over £3 billion has been put in as compensation um, for people, particularly uh, minors, over the past few years. Um, we are aware of the NACOD's dispute. We're aware of the sensitivity of it. I mean, I will see what is possible for me properly to do, but I, I hope you cannot take that as a, a, a firm commitment until I've looked uh, at the degree to which I am able to help. Kitty Usher. In the 1980s, my predecessor brought minister after minister to view Burnley's derelict housing problems, but it took the election of a Labour government before we finally, before we finally got the housing market renewal programme that was so desperately needed. However, the Liberal Democrat Tory administration Council is moving too slowly in administering this scheme and last year they didn't even spend the money that we allocated to them under this programme. So will my right honourable friend, before he leaves office, stick a rocket under the local authority and the local agencies so that my constituents get the regenerated communities they need and deserve? Well, First of all, um, I, I obviously agree entirely with my honourable friend that the, the regeneration money that has been put into our inner cities and, and in particular into the housing programmes and the Pathfinder programmes has, has worked a tremendous benefit. I think uh, there's something like 35,000 homes around the country, including 1,800 in East Lancashire, that have benefited from it. But, of course, this is absolutely typical of where the Lib Dems and the Tories get together and they don't have the, and they don't have the proper facility in order to make sure that these things count, that the money is properly used and invested in some of the poorest communities in our country, which is one very good reason, without reverting to the previous question, why I don't think Lib Dems and Tories together make a very good coalition. Robin Neal. Is the Prime Minister aware that as the NHS in South East London struggles with a £65 million plus accumulated deficit, largely as the result of flawed PFI contracts, the one hospital earmarked for closure St Mary's, which serves the Chislehurst part of my constituency, doesn't have a PFI contract. Will he assure my constituents that they will not lose their local hospital and A&E to bail out the Chancellor of the Exchequer's pet uh, botch-up? Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, in respect to Queen Mary's, I understand no decisions over the future of this, or indeed any hospital in the area, have actually been made. So I think he is somewhat premature in condemning that. But secondly, in respect of the, uh, his attack on, on, on the PFI, I think there have been some 26 PFI and public hospital schemes in his strategic health authority with a value of £1.7 billion. 
Uh, and there are also 28 lift schemes that have opened and 13 under construction in his strategic health authority. And if what he's doing, I don't know whether he, he, he speaks for the Conservative Party on this issue, but if he is signalling the Conservative Party opposition to PFI, we would never have got the renewal of our hospital stock without it. It is absolutely essential. It ties companies down to delivering budgets on time and on cost. And actually the reason for the budget deficit is the same reason in many parts of the country Hospitals and NHS trusts have to live within their means, and it is absolutely right that the system of financial accountability is introduced. But if he's trying to say that PFI is not delivered for his constituency, I suggest he takes a look round it. Dr. Tony Wright. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Has my, my right honourable friend noticed that the former head of his delivery unit, Sir Michael Barber, has been saying that the power of a Prime Minister is too weak uh, rather than too strong? Uh, that it needs to be strengthened uh, and that there needs to be a Prime Minister's department. Does, does my right honourable friend agree with this and would he recommend it to his successor? Well, first of all, I, I, I always thought that Michael Barber was a very sound man and, and I think it's, uh, that is an even sounder suggestion. However, it will be for my right honourable friend to decide. Annette Brook. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Given that next year is the National Year of Reading, Will the Prime Minister give his support to the Right to Read Alliance's campaign to improve the access to texts for visually impaired children, and in particular a pilot project which is being discussed with his officials at this time? We, we do support the, uh, the aims of the Right to Read campaign, and um, the... <laughs> And the Royal National Institute of the Blind <laughs> are quite right in saying that this is a very important issue. Uh, I understand that there is a, a feasibility project that's being uh, conducted at the present time between the DTI um, and the uh, Institute for the Blind. Um, we're obviously not in a position to publish the conclusions yet, but when we, we, we are able to do so, um, then I know we want to do everything we can to encourage it. The question is obviously one of cost and one of working out how this can be properly done. Um, but we support the general aims, and the feasibility project will be concluded shortly. Madeline Moon. Mr Speaker, at 10.42 on Sunday morning, my office answer phone picked up a message from the congregation in Gilgal Baptist Church during their morning service. They asked me to bring a message to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor that they continue to force through the standards and the changes in the Millennium Development Goals. What answer can I take to the Gilgal Baptist Church congregation? Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> They're one of, uh, one of complete support. Dr. Julian Lewis. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Number 10. As we said in the white paper we published in July 2004, we judged uh, at that time that we need fewer destroyers and frigates because of the reduced conventional threat and because of the improved technology of the new warships that are now coming into service. We are putting, therefore, more resources into programmes such as the future aircraft carriers and the Bay-class landing ships, which will be vastly more capable and versatile than the ships that they are replacing. Dr. Lewis. That is indeed what was said in 2004, but what was said in 1998 was that we needed 32 frigates and destroyers. The warships then were 
just as technologically advanced as the ones referred to several years later, and when it comes to believing him or believing successive first sea lords who have said in and out of, of office that we need 30 frigates and destroyers, I know which I would believe. He's cut them from 35 to 25. Will he now guarantee that he is not going to cut them further by mothballing another six frigates and destroyers? Now, first of all, he, he says, um, what, why is it different between July 2004 and 1998? Uh, it is true that in July, uh, in 1998, I think we said there should be 32 such frigates and destroyers, and in 2004 we reduced that number to 25. But we then increased the number or the capability of the alternative vessels. We are spending precisely... Well, I think you should wait for the answer before he shakes his head. I mean, he may shake it afterwards, but look, in... The, Actually, as a matter of fact, I point out to the honourable gentleman that we are the party that has increased defence spending when he cut it by 30%. And what I was about to say is the m amount of money we are putting into the new warship programme, which is huge and amounts to $14 billion over the next few years, is exactly the same as was predicated back in 1998, but we are spending it differently. That is change, and very sensible too. Order. Guardian Unlimited.